0: Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, thank you for this day that you've given us as a gift to glorify you in. And so many of us are here today with a desire to worship you and a desire to honor you, to obey you. It's why you know, God, that we're singing to you and praying to you and now going to read your word. We ask that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would make it effectual, that it would, it would do something, God. It wouldn't just be routine or mundane That as your word goes out, that it would reach down into souls and, and into hearts and we would be changed because of it. And God, if there are others here today who have, uh, have stumbled in here not, not to worship you, but to learn more about You, to figure out who You are or what a Christian is. God, I ask that You'd answer their questions today. And that You would speak truthfully to them and, and that You'd give them ears to hear. Help them to understand themselves and this world and You. And that it would be good for them. So as I preach, now God, help me to... Be faithful to your word and and to your truth and do a good work in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Two things today, two sections. In chapter 44, we could break it up verses 1 through 17 and verses 18 through 34. In verses 1 through 17, we are going to have the final testing of Joseph's brothers by Joseph. And then in verses 18 through 34, I think we see the first clear fruits of repentance in in his brothers. So a lot happening in chapter 44 because for the last several chapters, several weeks, everything has been building to this conclusion that we're going to read for the rest of our book that that really begins here though this conclusion here in chapter 44. So remember, over 20 years ago, in our story here, over 20 years ago, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, and they have for two decades uh, deceived. They have deceived others, and they have deceived themselves. So uh, they did a very wicked thing over 22 years ago, but dad doesn't know they did it. Uh, Their their little brother, Benjamin, most likely does not know that they did it. I doubt their wives and and their children know that they did it. This is something that they've spent, some of us would call a lifetime, concealing and hiding, trying not to be found out. And you just might think, if you've gone 20 years, you made it. That's a long time. I mean, you go a week or two, right? And you did something naughty. You go a week or two and, and no one knows. No consequence. And you think, maybe I got away with this one. And sometimes it may feel like you have. 22 years. 22 years. We've stuffed it. We've buried it. We haven't talked about it. And really, as you're going to see today, it looks like their life is going in a, a great direction at first, they still haven't had to deal with it. They haven't had to confess it. They haven't repented. And life's going to take a turn for the better. And they're going to think we're going to see that they've made it. We're, we're actually not going to have to deal with this sin. Uh, probably even deceive themselves. We have no record of them talking to one another. About that day, they gave their brother up and got rid of him. But God knew. God knew what happened. God knew what they did. God knew their hearts. God knew that this sin was was one of many, but representative of the sin that was the great obstacle between them and God in turning to Him. They needed to confess this. They needed to come clean. They needed to make retribution if they could. They, they needed to be honest men about who they were. They needed to cry out to God to be merciful for the wicked thing that they had done. And so we see how God continues to move them, turn them, to bring about repentance. So by God's providence, they and their families' welfare now rests in the hands of an Egyptian Lord who, unbeknownst to them, is their brother Joseph. Ridiculous, right? I mean, here their whole fate, the welfare of, of, of one another, the welfare of their wives and of their children, it all rests in the hands of this Egyptian Lord who they don't realize is actually their brother Joseph. Okay, the very thing that they have not dealt with for over 20 years, they are, and they don't even know it, they're dealing with it. And they're dealing with him. So for months in our reading here, for months now they've been dealing with Joseph. And to this point, Joseph has hidden his identity. And he did that on purpose. He didn't, he didn't uh, reveal himself. And months have gone by. And he had lots of good opportunities to do that. Right? To say, guess what? Guess what, you idiots? It's me. right? The one you, you said... Terrible things about. The one whose dreams you didn't believe. The one you wanted to kill. The one you sold into slavery. Well, look at me now. Governor of all of Egypt. I hold your fate in my hands. And you're bowing down to me asking for my help. Now, for for many of us, that would be a very tempting time to exact revenge on those that had sinned so grievously against us. But he doesn't bides his time, he waits. He's a godly man, so we've learned what he's doing. He's testing his brothers. Are they really changed men? Are they repentant? Have their hearts been transformed? What's at the bottom of that inquiry? Can he trust them? Can they be reconciled? Joseph, we know, he wants to be reconciled to his brothers, but can he be reconciled to them? Because if they're the same boys they were 20 years ago, they're not going to have a relationship. So he's got to figure this out. And he's shrewd about it. He puts them through tests. Because I'm sure that if he would have revealed himself on day one and said, hey listen, it's me. It's me. Uh-oh, I'm still alive and I'm king. And either you guys say sorry and, and you live or don't say sorry and you die. And oh, we're pretty sure what they would say. It wouldn't be a real good indicator of where their heart was, right? I'm sure they would say, yeah, we're sorry. So he waits. He conceals his identity. And he's been running them through it giving him all these tests that are designed to reveal the hearts of his brothers. So that's on the outside what's going on. But then the author gives us insight into what is going on underneath, what is going on behind the scenes. So while Joseph is testing his brothers to see if they really are changed men, God is actually bringing his brothers to repentance. So they're really not changed men when this story begins. But God is changing them. And God is using the tests that Joseph is running them through to to bring them to change, to bring them to repentance. Because God has big plans for these men, right? These are significant men in your Bible. You look at the names of these men and they're going to show up for the rest of your Bible. The reason is that they actually are the nation of Israel. They are the, the 12 tribes of Israel. They're the sons of Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel. And God has enormous plans to work through these men. But, they're going to have to be repentant men. They're going to have to be God-loving, God-fearing, God-following men. And so God's going to have to grant them repentance. Acts 11 talks about this. 2 Timothy chapter 2 talks about this. It is God who must grant repentance. God has to do it. Is there anything we do when we repent? Absolutely. There's a lot that we do. But we will not do what we do unless God grants us to repentance. And that's the very language the Bible uses. When Peter comes and tells the other apostles that, hey, God is making Christians out of Gentiles. This isn't just a Jewish thing. And they're surprised. You know, thinking that God was just going to stick to the Jews. But... He convinces them. No, it's clear. The Holy Spirit is moving and working and doing the same things among them that He's doing among us. They're repenting. They're believing. And when He brings them that news, they don't all gather around and say in Acts 11.18, wow, how how awesome are the Gentiles! How great are the Gentiles! They pulled it together. They say, how great is God! God is granting them repentance. And so what we're getting here is a behind-the-scenes look at how God is granting Joseph's brothers repentance. How is He moving them to confess their sin, to forsake their sin, to turn to God, to, to, to put away confidence in themselves and to, and to hold on to confidence in Christ? How, how, how is God doing that? We've seen several things. Number one, we saw deprivation. God deprived them of some Pretty basic needs like food, water. There was a great famine. And so they're experiencing the pain of physical or material wanting. Sometimes God does that with His people to put some pressure on them, to cause them to look and to evaluate and to consider. What else does He do? Number two, He brought harsh words and treatment. Mostly at the hands of Joseph, who was an instrument, to borrow the title of our training that starts on Wednesday. He was an instrument in the Redeemer's hands. God was using Joseph to minister to these boys. How? With with some harsh words. Some harsh treatment. God was confronting them. Proverbs 27.6 Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So when Joseph is treating his brothers harshly, he's a friend, not an enemy. Third, solitude. God used solitude. To bring these men to repentance. To drown out all the noise of the world around them and to give them opportunity to think. To evaluate their life. To consider what they had done. Sometimes it doesn't happen unless you get alone with God. Fourth, necessity. He was teaching them necessity. In other words, there were unavoidable and unalterable circumstances in their life. God was teaching these boys, you are not in control. And God will do this to grant repentance and to move us to turn from sin. He will remind us through various circumstances that are outside of our control that we are not in control, that we were never in control, that we are not as independent as we think we are. We are totally dependent on God. And then fifth, surprisingly, kindness. God used kindness to bring them to repentance. The Bible talks about this a lot. We are told that God is kind to us, God is gracious to us, every one of us, and that's meant to lead us to repentance. In other words, you see and you get how much God loves you. Don't you want to love him? Don't you want to turn to him? Don't you want to follow Him? He is the source of everything good in your life. He's the reason your heart is still ticking. He's the reason you've got food to eat. He's the reason you've got water to drink. He's the reason if you've got friends, you've got friends. He's the reason if you've got family, you've got family. He's the reason if you've got a church, you've got church. He's the reason you have anything good in your life. Don't you want to love Him? That's how His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. So God has been working with these men, but He's not done. He's not done. Which is what brings us to chapter 44. These men still have not openly confessed their sin. They have not thrown themselves upon the unmerited mercies of God. There's more work to be done. So we see today the final test. Final test from Joseph. And then secondly, we see the first clear fruits of repentance. In these lives. Now many commentators have said. That this is the chapter. Where these men are born again. I mean that, that. For every Christian there's a moment in time. It's not a gradual thing. It may seem sort of gradual to you. But there's a moment in time. Where you are born again. Where there is new life is breathed into you by God. And the Bible describes that in a whole bunch of different ways. You're made a new creation. You were dead in sin. Now you're alive to Christ. Or your eyes have been opened and you've been given ears to hear. Or Ezekiel says your heart of stone is taken and you're given a heart of flesh. So you're, you're completely transformed on the inside so that you you understand God, you understand your sin, you understand the gospel, and your response when that change is worked is you love God. And you like a baby cries out for food, you cry out as a born-again believer, you cry out in faith. And you're taking hold of God, and you want to honor God, you want to love God, you want to trust God, and as maybe you are Christians, you had that point. In your life, right? where You look look before you were born. It was very clear. I I was not born again on that date. (laughs) I was not born again. And on this date, I was born again. Everything dramatically changed. Well, many commentators say that the the indicators that are here in this chapter, and that would be exciting, is that this is it. God has been... Pushing and pushing and pushing and working and working and working. But here's where he flips the switch. And here's where we see clear response from these brothers. Wow, these are changed men. They are not who they once were. They are new creations, Paul says. The old is gone. The new has come. So it's exciting. It's exciting to see how God finally moves these men to turn from their sin and turn to God. Because they do think that that's what we see here in chapter 44. So here's where we go. Uh, the, the feast has just ended. That's where we left off at the, at the end of chapter 33. The feast is, is done at Joseph's table. and uh, Chapter 44, verse 1. Then he, this Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, Put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph had told him. This has happened to these boys before. Similar. There's a twist here. But the first time they left Egypt and were headed back home, their bags were filled with grain and their bags were filled with money, which didn't look good. 'Cause that would look like you stole the grain. Cause you went down there with money to buy the grain to survive the famine. So if you come back with grain and your money, it doesn't look good. Well, this time the grain, the money, and silver cup. Silver cup that belongs to the king. This is a big deal. We we don't really get this because most of you, unless you're weird, don't have a cup that is like your cup, his dad's cup, this is mom's cup, very special cup. No one touches this cup. How dare you drink from this cup? We don't have this kind of cup, but the king would have a cup like that. And it, it was his. And It was very important. It was very special. And it was used for various rites. And, and you don't mess with this cup. He touches that cup. His cupbearer touches that cup. And that's about it. The cupbearer makes sure that what goes in is maybe tasted by someone else. And they wait a few minutes to see if they die <laughs> before he gives it. This is a big deal. So you don't take this cup. And so Joseph tells his his, his butler, I want you to put that in Benjamin, the youngest brother. I want you to put that in his sack. And we see what Joseph is doing. Verse 3, As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. And now Joseph said to his steward, Up! I want you to follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. This is a big setup. Kind of messed up, right? Didn't steal a cup. He's planting evidence. I want you to go put this in the trunk. Can they, when they're on the highway, I want you to pull them over. You want you say, hey, you got anything in the trunk? No, we don't have anything in the trunk. Open the trunk. And then you're going to pull out my cup. That doesn't sound very godly, does it? He tells his steward also to tell the men, hey, make sure they understand, this is the cup by which I practice divination. Divination? Joseph doesn't practice divination. Divination was a, a pagan practice of the Egyptians whereby they interacted with the spiritual world and, 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 and were able to discern supposedly secrets that were not made known to them or maybe even see into the future. So he wants his, his, his steward to go to these men and say, you've, you've stolen a cup. You've repaid good with evil. And this cup is a cup by which this governor Knows all secrets. These boys have a secret? They do. He's provoking them to think and to consider. He's backing them into a corner where they're going to need to deal with their sin. So he sets them up. He actually has the cup put into Benjamin's bag so that he can falsely accuse them of theft. He's going to force them to come back and to deal with him face to face again. It would probably be good to say this at this point. This is a descriptive text, not a prescriptive text. This is an important uh, hermeneutical principle which just means... How you read your Bible, how you interpret your Bible, how you apply your Bible. There's really good rules that we need to have or we'll make a mess of things. And one of the things that we can all be tempted to do if we're not careful is to not differentiate between descriptive text in your Bible and prescriptive text. Prescriptive text is, is text that tells you what to do. and There's a lot of that in the Bible, right? I know, right? Tells you what to do. Descriptive text just tells you what happened. But sometimes Christians will read descriptive text and say, that's what I'm supposed to do. No, that's not what it's saying. So you'll really mess yourself up if you read about how Joseph tests his brothers to bring about repentance. Oh, so I'm supposed to set people up and I'm supposed to plant evidence and I'm supposed to entrapment. This is all very good and these are tools that are used in the Redeemer's hands and I can be an instrument for God and do good things. And This is a descriptive text. What actually we're seeing here is that Joseph is a picture of God. Because this is how God deals with his people. God, we are told, never tempts his children, but he tests his children. See, the motive behind temptation is destruction, the motive behind testing is you're good. And so when you're faced with a difficult circumstance, there is a temptation behind it that's from Satan, and that is to trip you up to do evil. But there is a motive behind it that is for your good, and that's God. He means to refine your faith. He means to strengthen your faith. He means to bring you to repentance. This is God working through Joseph to do what it takes to bring these boys to repentance. Verse 6. So he did it. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, "'Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house?' Whichever of your servants is found, with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. That statement there, verse 9. And we see it also in verse 7. But that statement right there in verse 9 takes a lot of self-confidence to say. Hear the self-confidence in these men in their sort of indignant response to the accusation. Do you hear that? Verse 7, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Self-confidence. And then verse 9, If you find what you're looking for in any one of us, you can kill him and the rest of us will become your servants." Self-confidence. Remember we said, or I said at the beginning, that these boys came down to Egypt full of fear. Full of fear. Were they going to be found out? Were they going to be exposed? Were they finally, these were the words they were muttering to each other in the jail. There's going to be a reckoning for our brother's blood. Full of fear. No confidence. Are we going to bring Simeon back? Are we going to bring Benjamin back? Are we going to die of starvation? What's going to happen to our dad if... And what has happened? They've gone down there. Have they dealt with their sin? They have not dealt with their sin. But they ended up feasting at the governor's table. And now they're heading back home. They've got grain. They've got money. They got Simeon. Got Benjamin. They have stomachs full of good food because they were eating at the governor's table. At this point, could life get any better? we don't need to confess our sin. We don't need to dig this up. We don't need to repent. We don't need God. And that's expressed in their self-confident rhetoric in these few verses when they respond to the steward that comes to accuse them of a crime. What they basically say in verse 7 is, how could you even think such a thing of us? How could you... Ever accuse us of this? We are, it's as if they're saying we are honest men of integrity. Well, you may not be guilty of this crime, but these are not men who should be self confident. These are not honest men, historically. These are not men of integrity. Christians can have a tendency to do this. We can fall into this. Someone confronts us on something. We get very condescending. How could you ever... It just hurts that you question my motives. Well, relax. How could you... How could you think... I would ever do such a thing. What? Cause you did it yesterday, <laughs> like a few hours ago. How could you think such thoughts of me? I think a lot worse thoughts, actually. I'm just sharing some of them. I mean, <laughs> I'm holding back here. Look, are you a sinner? I mean, we just are you a sinner? I'm a sinner. I know my own thoughts sure your thoughts aren't too much better. I'm struggling. You're struggling. I just see something that doesn't look good and I'd like to talk about it, but we can just play the high road. It's just deflection, right? It's just I don't go there. Oftentimes you know, a little trick if you don't, haven't figured this out already, oftentimes when somebody reacts like that, you nail them. You nail them. Guilty as charged. You hit the nail right on the head. And what's their reaction? Defensiveness. I feel like you don't even know me. Actually, they they know you really well, don't they? Have you had somebody do this for you? The wounds of a friend, right? Listen, self-confidence is the opposite of faith. This is not a good thing. Because what is faith? Faith is confidence in Christ. Faith is taking hold of Christ. That's the opposite of self-confidence. So it's interesting when God strikes with the lightning here, isn't it? Here are these boys headed back home. We made it. We got out of Egypt. Remember, Egypt's their guilt word. We don't talk about Egypt. We got out of Egypt. We are now favored by the governor. What a story we have to tell our families when we go back home. We made it. We can finally put this thing to bed. But God knows. God doesn't let it go. Let's keep reading. Verse 10. The steward responds when the brothers say, you know, kill us if we've got it. The steward actually gives a gracious alternative. He said, let it be as you say he was found with it shall be My servant and the rest of you shall be innocent. So yeah, we'll punish the guy who's got it, but the rest of you can go free. Verse 11, Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. So you, can you picture the scene in your mind? So he's going through all of the bags, looking for the stolen goods. And he starts with the oldest and he's going to the youngest. Which means that Benjamin, where we know the cup is, he's going to be last. So what is happening... Just think about this. What is happening to the brothers' self-confidence as this lengthy process of going through all the bags? What is happening to their self-confidence? is increasing, right? You're not going to find anything in there. Oh, you go ahead and check. See? Nothing in there. That feels good, right? That's vindication. Vindication. We said we didn't do it. We didn't do it. How dare you question us? We're men of integrity. You're making us late. We're honest men. Get this over with. It's going to prove out that we were right and you were wrong bag by bag by bag until they get to Benjamin. Benjamin doesn't even know what happened to Joseph. If anyone's innocent here, it's Benjamin. Are the brothers worried at all at this point? They have no fear, no worry, total self-confidence, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. Now, I think that's the moment, for what it's worth. I think that's the moment. I think when that last bag was opened, new creations, every one of them, born again, right there. I don't think they tore their clothes because they were wrongly convicted of a crime. We're going to see that. That's, That's not the deal. They tore their clothes because they finally know they cannot run from God. They cannot run from Him. God will even use stuff they didn't actually do to awaken them to what they've done. And these are different boys for the rest of your Bible. Benjamins, you've got to be kidding me. Benjamin? No way. Man, God is good. He cannot get away. Never saw this coming. Tearing of clothes was a sign of inner anguish and grief. The last time we read about this was when Jacob tore his clothes when he learned of Joseph's supposed death. Um, It's an inward sorrow that's being reflected. And it's also important to note here that though the steward said, when I find the guilty guy, that guy stays with me and then the rest of you can go home. It's important to note that in verse 13, it says all the brothers went back to the city. I think that's the best part of the story. Because that's their moment, isn't it? To get out of this. And we know what they did before when a brother was trouble for them. Just wash their hands of it. But every one of these boys, so glad to finally get out of Egypt. And every one of them heads back to the city. Why? Because Benjamin's there. Because little brother's there. Oh, big brothers, big sisters. This is a great story. We're not going anywhere without Benjamin. So I think their hearts have changed and we're going to see the fruit as we read on. Verse 14, When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? There it is again. Does he practice divination? Let's be clear. No, he does not practice divination. Joseph loves God, one of the godliest people in your whole Bible. But what is he? He's playing the part here for the brothers. Don't you know who you're dealing with? I mean, I'm a guy who knows secrets. Now, does he know their secret? Yeah, he knows their secret. Does he know it by divination? No, it's because he was there. (laughs) He was there. So he's saying, I, I know you've got a secret, and I know your secret. You're going to deal with me honestly. Verse 15. Sorry, verse 16. And Judah said, what, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. Do you see what he said? In the middle of verse 16. God has found out the guilt of your servants. But Judah knows they are innocent of stealing the cup. So what is this guilt that God has given? Found out. We know what it is, don't we? It's given up. We can't run from God any longer. We may be innocent of this thing out there. I sure wasn't Benjamin. I don't know how innocent of this, but we're not innocent. We're done declaring our innocence before God. Yeah. Out the guilt of your servants. They know God is holding them accountable for their sin against their little brother Joseph. So they're done. This is good. They're not running anymore. Not blaming anymore. Not making excuses anymore. They're just, they're just done. You're going to see they're not even going to ask for mercy because they don't even think they deserve it. Which is the mark of a Christian. They don't even think they deserve mercy. Just Do what you think that you should do. Because we are guilty before God. We are wrong men. And God's found us out. They are innocent of stealing the cup, but they were, James Boyce said, deeply, irrevocably, damnably guilty of the dreadful sin of having sold their brother Into slavery. But then Joseph said this in verse 17. And here it is. This is Joseph's final. This has all been a part of his final test, but now this is the culmination of all his tests of the final test. How will they respond to what he says in verse 17? Because how they respond to what Joseph says in verse 17, for Joseph, is going to be a heart indicator. What does he say? Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. For those of you who know the story well, you might be seeing the test here. Will the older brothers desert their youngest brother? Will they abandon him? Because how did they treat the youngest brother before? They abandoned him. How will they treat the new youngest brother? How will they treat the new brother who is the apple of their father's eye, who has the favoritism of their father that was so painful for them, They sold Joseph just to get out of that misery. This time, it's for their freedom. The payoff is way more significant. How will they respond? They are miles from home. Jacob would be none the wiser. They've done this before. It would be easy to cover up. Will they treat Benjamin the way they treated Joseph? I'm sure he wants to know. What do they think of Benjamin? Will they treat Benjamin the way they treated me? How do they feel about their father now? Years before, they didn't care that it would break their father's heart if I didn't come back. Joseph may have been thinking. My cries were ignored. My pleas were ignored. They didn't care what it would do to me. They didn't care what it would do to my father. How will they treat me now? Attention is maxed out in this account. How are the brothers going to respond? And this is where... This is where Joseph is looking for fruit of repentance. That's why the second half we're going to see what I think is clear fruit of repentance. That's what he's looking for. I mean, he's heard some good words from them and he, he knows what they would say. Is there, is there really any fruit? This is what we do with one another as, as Christians, right? We're quick to forgive one another. We should be. Think about how much Jesus has forgiven us. How we're quick to forgive one another. Sometimes people sin against us minorly. Sometimes they sin against us majorly. And depending what the sin is, reconciliation may be a bit more difficult, right? Building trust may be a bit more difficult. I mean, that's what Joseph's working through. Can I trust these men? That may take some time. Well, what do we do as Christians? We watch and we wait watch watch and wait for what Luke 38 fruits in keeping with repentance Acts 26:20 20, Are they performing deeds in keeping with repentance Matthew chapter 7 you will know a tree by what it says No <laughs> you will know a tree by what it does right by its fruit Does it bear fruit or not? Or the book of James? Hey, faith without deeds is dead. I love Jesus without I love Jesus deeds is not I love Jesus. I'm sorry words without I'm sorry deeds is not I'm sorry. Please forgive me words without please forgive me action is not please forgive me. So you still got an obstacle to reconciliation. So you You graciously, lovingly, patiently, you watch and you wait. You don't set up. (laughs) You don't plant evidence. You watch and you wait. You see, I love love what's coming out of your mouth. I love the words. Now, just, just for your sake, for my sake, for the church's sake, for everyone's sake, let's watch now and let's see if the fruit doesn't follow we evaluate, you evaluate. I mean, this is all that's happening here. Joseph desperately wants to be reconciled to his brothers, but he's got to wait. He's got to be patient. Was it hard for him to be patient? It was. He's had to excuse himself on more than one occasion to go cry it out in the back room because he just wants to, to just hug him right now. He wants this to be done. But he's got to be wise. He's got to be careful. And so he, he waits. You're going to see here in the next chapter, after he hears what Judah's about to say, he loses it. Totally loses it. it tells us he, can't, he couldn't control himself any longer. He just falls apart. He's like, I'm done. This is total repentance. This is totally clear. I'm glad I waited these long months. It's evident we can be reconciled. But he's got to wait now. And right now, it's all hanging on their response. To what he says in verse 17. I'm giving you a way out right now. Abandon your brother, and you guys go home free men. So here we have one of the longest speeches in the entire book of Genesis, and it is a moving speech especially when you consider who is giving this speech. Judah. Now, we knew God had big plans for Judah, but Judah has not looked so hot in in the book of Genesis. It's kind of a mess. We could go back and read chapter 37 and read about his abhorrent behavior. He was a man who cared very little about his father was angry at his father and cared very little about his little brother. In fact, if you remember, it was Judah's plan to sell Joseph into slavery. Judah was the mastermind. Some people have misinterpreted and thought, oh, well, the brothers wanted to kill Joseph, but Judah was nicer. And so he said, no, let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery. That was not his motive. And the text makes that clear. He didn't want to have Joseph's blood on his hands. We'll let somebody else kill him. He was Pontius Pilate. We'll just hand him over and let someone else do it. Plus, we can make a buck. That's wicked. Judah is the one who says these following words. H.C. Leopold's doctor, professor said this is One of the manliest, most straightforward speeches ever delivered by any man. Wow. For depth of feeling and sincerity of purpose, it stands unexcelled. And Donald Gray Barnhouse thought it to be the most moving address in all the word of God. That's what we're about to read, is the opinion of some. This is a moving speech given by Judah Remember where we're at in the story. Everything hangs on how the brothers respond here. Are these men repentant? Are they transformed? Do they have new hearts? Are they the same old guys? And remember who's giving this speech. The mastermind who 20 years before instigated the selling of Joseph into slavery that he may die and they be rid of him forever. Then Judah went up to Joseph and said, "O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself." His speech begins with a, a pleading to Joseph to hear him out privately. This isn't public. this isn't a spectacle. This isn't, hey, everybody, look how good I am. Hey, look what I'm doing. Look how I'm fighting for our brother. He's asking to speak to Joseph in private. May I have a word? I need to plead with you. Can we go somewhere quiet? Just the two of us. And will you please hear me out? And what is he saying? I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. But please, will you hear me out? Verse 19. My Lord asked His servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. And then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your younger, youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. That's part one of two parts of his speech. And this first part, all Judah is doing is describing the events very honestly, by the way. Describing the events leading up to Benjamin being in Egypt, and he stresses here, he stresses the relationship between Jacob and Benjamin. He wants Joseph to know how special the relationship is between Jacob and Benjamin. He wants him to know how much his dad loves his little brother. And he wants him to know how much his little brother loves his dad. And Judah knows that this father has never loved him the way he loved Benjamin and Joseph. The love that he's describing is the love that he always wanted, that every child wants from his father. But Jacob sinfully showed favoritism in this family. Remember at one point when they came back from Egypt and said, listen, we've got to take Benjamin back. And Jacob looks at him and says, well, if you take Benjamin and something happens to him, I don't have any kids left. And they're like, what the? What the about us? But that's how, it, that's how it was in this family. I mean, Rachel was my beloved and she's gone and Joseph's gone and the only other kid she gave me is Benjamin. And that's my boy. I mean, the message that's coming across a lot, right, is I don't don't care so much what happens to you guys. But Benjamin, that's my boy. How painful would that reality have been for Judah? And yet it is that very thing that Judah brings up to defend his father and his brother and to fight for the reunion of his father and his brother. This is a changed man. Look at the second part. Verse 30. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, As soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant our father with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father of all my life. And now here's his plea. Joseph's listening, okay? I get it. I get it. You love your dad clearly. You love your little brother clearly. Don't exactly see why. Sounds like your, bro- your dad has not treated you very well. But here's I get it. And now here's the reason Judah's given all that information. Here's his plea. Here's what he wants Joseph to consider. And here's the fruit that he's a changed man. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my lord let the boy go back with his brothers how can i go back to my father if the boy is not with me i fear to see the evil that would find my father So we hear Judah's heart for his father. That's a changed man. I don't think Jacob's been a good father. He's a good man, he's a godly man. But like other godly men in the Bible, like David, not a great husband, not a great father, not someone to follow in that regard. Judah loves his dad. Judah loves his little brother. Doesn't resent Benjamin the way he resented Joseph. Not bitter toward Benjamin as he was against Joseph. And here he is fighting for his little brother's life and therefore fighting for his father's life because he knows if little brother is lost, dad's going to be lost. And how does he fight for his little brother's life and how does he fight for his father's life by putting his own life on the line? Giving up all of his own freedom. Saying, listen, I don't care about going back. Just please let let the rest of my family go back. And I'll stay. I'll stay. Joseph could not have prayed for a better response. Which is why the reaction we'll see in chapter 45. 45. Not only did the brothers not abandon Benjamin, they pleaded for his life and the life of their father. And Judah, whose plan it was to sell Joseph into slavery, now pleads to become a slave that Benjamin may go free. Derek Kidner said, When the steward converted their challenge, verse 9, into a chance of freedom at Benjamin's expense. All the conditions were present for another betrayal at a far more compelling price, their freedom. Years before, they'd gotten 20 pieces of silver. Now their freedom is offered. If they will only betray Benjamin, the response by their unanimity, their frankness, and their constancy shows how well the discipline had done its work. In conclusion, two things to consider. Number one, what do you need to repent of? What do you need to repent of? Something secret that needs to finally come to light. Something that you just have not been repenting deeply enough and it's just over and over and over again and there, there, there needs to be a more significant turning Something you're hiding? Something you're not dealing with well? What do you need to repent of? Be careful lest you be like the brothers on their way back to Canaan. We can, like them, take great pride in the things that we are innocent of and pay no attention to the things that we're guilty of. It's exactly what they were doing. Hey, look at us. We're honest men, men of integrity. How dare you challenge us? We would never steal anything. But we'd sell our brother into slavery. Maybe you're like Benjamin in the sense that you are the least guilty in the room. But you're still in trouble. I think all these boys, including Benjamin, are getting converted here. you are still in trouble. But remember where the cup was found. It was found in Benjamin's sack. You can go online. You can find all kinds of sermons entitled, The Cup Was Found in Benjamin's Sack. And we who are Christians or we who think we are Christians should evaluate ourselves and see if there are any stolen cups in our bag. Something we need to deal plainly and honestly with the Lord about. Let me read this to you before our final conclusion. This is by F.B. Meyer. And he wrote... A preacher of the Gospel was once speaking to an old Scotswoman who was commonly regarded as one of the most devout and respectable people in that part of the country. He was impressing on her her need of Christ. And at last, with tears in her eyes, she said, Oh, sir, I have never missed a Sabbath at the Kirk. And I have read my Bible every day. And I have prayed and done good deeds to my neighbors. I have done all I knew I ought to do. And now do you mean to tell me that it must all go for nothing? And he answered her, Well, You have to choose between trusting in these and trusting in the redemption which God offers you in Christ. You cannot have both. If you are content to part company with your own righteousness, the Lord will give you his. But if you cling to your Bible reading and Sabbath keeping and good deeds, the Lord's righteousness cannot be yours. It was quite a spectacle, he said afterwards, to see that old woman's face. The cup was found in Benjamin's sack. For some time, she sat in silence, her elbows on the table, her face buried in her hands. A great struggle was going on within. At length, the tears began to stream from her eyes. Lifting up her clasped hands to heaven, she cried out, Oh, my God, they shall all gain for nothing. In a moment more, she cast herself on her knees and accepted the Lord Jesus as her Savior. It is when the cup is found in Benjamin's sack that he too is brought to the feet of Jesus. Not focusing on that which you are innocent of and taking pride in that which you are innocent of. Friends, what are you guilty of? What do you still need to bring to light that you can be washed clean of that too? There's the promise of that in the Gospel. Repent and confess your sin as we finally see these brothers doing. And then finally, number two, the reason we can confess, the reason we can repent, the reason we can bring our sin out from under the bed, out of the closet, and into the light of day is because the Gospel is true. And we see here in Judah who is a forerunner of Jesus Christ, who will be called the Lion of Judah. We see a foreshadowing of the Gospel. There is a picture of the Gospel here where Judah comes forth as a substitute. Not him, me. Christ in the Gospel says, not them, me. May I be punished. May I receive the penalty in their place. And Judah is a picture of that. There's lots of pictures of that in your Bible. Judah was willing to become a slave for the love of his brother and father. Moses, you remember in Exodus 32, was willing to be sent to hell for his people. Paul, in the beginning of Romans chapter 9, expressed a willingness to be accursed if it meant the salvation of those whom he loved. But here's the difference, of course. There are several. But for one, Judah did not become a slave. Moses was not sent to hell. Paul was not accursed. But Jesus was sacrificed. He was killed. And Judah was guilty. And Moses was guilty. And Paul was guilty. And Jesus was innocent. And the innocent died in the place of the guilty. And you all as the guilty need to believe that. Need to accept that. That you're guilty before God. You cannot get to God on your own. You offended God. He's been nothing but good and gracious to you. Your heart is ticking because of God. You have air to breathe because of God. You've got food to eat because of God. You have water to drink because of God. You have a family because of God. Friends because of God. A church because of God. Health because of God. And yet many of us are indifferent to Him. And do not love Him. Do not ask to be Him to reveal Himself to us. Have no desire to follow Him. Have no desire to submit to Him. And that is by definition God-despising, God-hating. And God is perfectly just to condemn you and send you to hell. Alienated from him as you have alienated yourself from him in your time on earth. But God has made a way through Jesus Christ. You are guilty and he has sent an innocent one to pay a price and to suffer death and to suffer alienation from God in your place. And if you would stop trying to just be good enough to go to heaven and realize that that's never going to happen and that it's offensive to God to pretend you can be good enough to earn salvation and take hold of Jesus, then what you do is you're repenting, you're turning from sin, and you're believing you're taking hold of Christ. That's what we mean at the end of every worship service where we say, if you are not in Christ, will you turn to Him and be saved? We mean stop doing it yourself. Stop trying to earn your way to heaven. Stop thinking you're a good person. Stop thinking you deserve His mercy. Stop thinking you got some payoff waiting for you. Admit your sin. Confess your sin. Forsake your sin. Believe the Gospel. And spend the rest of your life loving Him and honoring Him. Amen. That's what we mean. And that's what we must do. Let me close with a quote from Ligon Duncan, where he says in a sermon on this passage It is interesting, isn't it? Here, the guilty offers himself as a substitute for the innocent. But there would be another lion of the tribe of Judah who was innocent, but who would offer himself as a substitute for his guilty brothers. And that substitute would be accepted, and he would live and die in their place that they might experience His glory. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, help us all to know, to see, to believe that we are sinners who do not deserve Your mercy. And we are sinners who do not deserve Your grace. And if we have received Your mercy, may we thank You again for it. If we have received Your grace, may we thank You again for it. And if we have not yet received Your mercy, may we cry out for it now. May we plead for mercy in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that those who are here who do not believe, that they would plead with You now to accept the death of Jesus Christ on their behalf. And God, we ask that You would come in and spark new life in them. Pray that their desires would change. Their thoughts would change. Their actions would change. Their words would change. You would be glorified in them as they become new creations. Loving You. Serving You. Obeying You. We do love You, God. We pray all these things in the great name of Your Son who is Jesus Christ. Amen.